Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to a little musical lead-in by myself on my Recording King $88 Blue OM Triple O guitar that uh, I bought on eBay. And it just has a, a really kind of nice muted sound. But that's not the reason for the podcast today. The reason for the podcast is sitting directly across from me is my best friend and my former duo partner in music. We started uh, performing back in college when we were roommates, Mr. Richard Brackold, and he's sitting there and I'm so happy to have him on the show. And we're just going to have a conversation. Hi, Rich. Hi, Todd. So how are you? Are you nervous? No, heck no. I speak into microphones all the time. (laughs) But have you ever done a podcast before? Never. What would you like to talk about? Oh, maybe how we got together. Well, tell me, how did... In your recollection, how did you and I first start playing guitar together? We started playing when we were roommates for the young ladies who we used to entertain in our dorm room. Well, and not only the dorm room, do you remember that, I think it was Wednesday evenings, the, they opened up the gym for the guys to play basketball. And they would all go to the gym to play basketball and you and I would go to the girls' dormitory into their lobby or where they had the sofas and stuff, and we would play and sing to them. And, of course, all the boyfriends were playing basketball, so the girls would all come and sit and listen to us. Do you remember that? Um, yeah, I guess I do. We, we did have a way to uh, attract the girls, didn't we? Well, you did. I, <laughs> I, I was along for the ride. If I recall, your nickname by a lot of the girls was Adonis. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had the golden curls we did the long shoulder length hair we did have hair and you had the physique you were a perfect well not a professional skier but how would you describe your your level of skiing when you were in college i was uh ranked on the national level i never made it to the top but i was ranked at the national level number 22 in the slalom well i could yeah i was up there yeah no i remember that because i was so proud of the fact that my friend rich and my roommate was rated 22 in the United States for the slalom. And you won the Dartmouth Cup one year. I did. Surprised everybody. I was a freshman in college, and I came home, and the coach said, how'd you do? I said, I won. And he said, no, come on, really, tell me how you did. Then I showed him my uh, silver plate. <laughs> now, how did you get into ski- We're going to divert from music for a moment. How did you get into skiing, alpine skiing? Uh, my mother and father were skiers. They were actually competitive speed skaters, and they went on a speed skating um, holiday up to Lake Placid, and they saw these um, people doing this new thing from Europe called skiing, and my dad tried it, fell in love with it, and had me skiing when I was three. My sister was uh, seven, and we skied every single weekend all the way through uh, high school. And you lived in northern New Jersey, right? Correct, yeah. And where did you ski? In southern New York. What what ski areas? Oh, we were at a state-run area called Bel Air. We were at a local area called High Mount. And then there were some closer areas, um, Sterling Forest. And uh, they were only about a half hour away from us across the border. So, so But how did you get into competitive skiing? Uh, I was a bit incorrigible. And my dad wanted me to... You still uh, are. (laughs) My dad and mom wanted me to uh, stay out of trouble. And um, they suggested um, speed skating. And I hated it. 
absolutely hated it. And they said, well, we got to get him into something. So let's try ski racing. And I loved it. Now, what was it about uh, speed racing for, on ice skates that you did not like? I had flat feet. And it was long before orthotics were invented. Ah. And my feet killed me. And it just wasn't fun. Now, wouldn't that affect skiing as well, though? For some reason, the ski boots uh, supported the ankles. And no, it, it, no, it didn't. It, it, was, it was different. Yeah. Now, did you find instant success as a, a racer in oh, skiing? No. Oh, no. You know, I, you, you had to work your way up from the younger the younger tier up to the, you know, the older ones. By the end of high school, I was, um, I was rated what they called class A, which was the highest rating. And then when I went to college, I was, you know, the number one skier at the, at the school, right. As a freshman. Now, did you, how did you pick the university of Maine and Orono as the, the, the school to go to? I was invited to a very prestigious race at Sugarloaf, the uh, big ski area up in Maine as a senior. And I hadn't decided yet. I thought I wanted to go to Dartmouth. I didn't have the grades. I was put on the waiting list at the University of Vermont. And uh, schools that all had good ski teams, I just didn't have the grades to get in. <laughs> and I went to Sugarloaf and raced in this race. And we went over to see uh, the University of Maine, which was another school I was considering. And they had so much snow, you couldn't even see over the snow banks. And I said to my dad, this is where I want to go. And uh, they did take me with my B minus C plus average, and the rest is history. <laughs> now, Brad Folger, who was the ski coach mm -hmm. for the ski team, had you met him before you went in as a freshman? No. Strangely enough, the soccer coach who used to coach in New Jersey against our school put in a good word for me because I was a, uh, I was a goalie and I... I got some recognition as a goalie in, in high school and he's now up and he was now up in Maine and he was the one who actually said you know I think we should take this kid along he also knows how to ski <laughs> well cool the because I met you in your freshman year right my roommate had to put it an easy way flunked out and I I, him. I didn't have a roommate set for the second semester and you were um, I think upstairs or on a different wing and for some reason, I remember one fellow coming over. He says, hey, you know, would you be interested in having this fellow? He's from New Jersey. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. And they, they said, would you be interested in taking him as a roommate? I said, well, sure. I think, I, I think you came down and I met you. And I think we said we both surf. That's correct. That was the connection. Yeah, because I think I had my con surfboard iron butterfly against the wall so and you came I. in and you had your yeah so did i do you remember what surfboard you had at that point in time that was i had a con butterfly if i remember okay yeah. so they, that was our connection yeah and then we learned what that we both played the guitar that's right yeah. and um you were a much bigger beatles fan than i was i loved the beatles but you were like yeah hook always, line and sinker always yeah so the um, so who decided to play guitar with each other first? You or me, or did we? I don't remember. Uh, you were. I was still in grad school. I was coaching the team at the time, and I wasn't ready to get a job. You hated your job. I did. You were working uh, down in Connecticut, and we said, uh, "Why don't we do something we like?" 
and uh, we started playing together. And I, we, I remember we went on a surf trip down to the Carolinas. Virginia Beach, when my brother was stationed in, Beach, in the Navy. And, That's right. and all the way down, we were writing down songs we could do. We could do this one. We could do that one. We could do, okay, okay. We kind of figured it out and started practicing and had our first gig for free at the woodshed. And we're never asked back. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you listening, the woodshed is a very rustic bar. I don't think they had food. Do you remember? Did they yeah, have? Yeah, did I, they have food? I think so. Pub food. Yeah, in yeah. Brewster, Massachusetts, yeah. on Cape Cod. And at the time, I was, I think I was, I still had my Martin D twenty eight, and you had your Yamaha twelve string. Yamaha twelve, and we took six off it because it never stayed in tune with twelve strings. Yeah. And. Uh, and as a sideline, we met a young lady there that night because we were contemplating learning to fly and we didn't have the cash to buy an airplane. We thought it would be best. In fact, Brud Folger, who was your ski coach and good friend, who while we were in college kept saying to you, Rich, let me teach you how to fly. It'll be free. You won't cost you anything but, <laughs> yeah. but the gas. And you kept saying, now what would I need to learn how to fly for? And of course, once we left school and decided to learn to fly, you know, we're way down, you know, six, seven hours away and Brud couldn't teach us. So we had to, we had to, and he had suggested, I think, buy an airplane, then you don't have to rent it. Right. And you have it at your will to use it whenever you want. Well, do you remember the true impetus on us learning to fly? Wasn't that because you were got, you got a teaching job in yep. Machias, Maine? In Machias, Maine. And, and we, we booked a couple gigs on our way up. We were in your white van, yep. and I was going up to get the um, curriculum and the books. I had already accepted the job, and uh, we turned around. It was East Machias, and we turned around and went through Machias on Route 1, and you looked over to the right. I could see it in my mind, and you said, there's an airport over there. You said, if you're going to be way up here, maybe you should learn how to fly, and that was, that was it. We got back to the Cape. And I said, we're having so much fun playing the guitar. And I said, I can't go back up there. <laughs> I just can't go back up there. No offense to Maine. I love visiting, but I can't go back up there. And um, that was when we learned to fly. Because you said, you're going to have to fly if you want to get up here. Now, if I recall, wasn't the road from Bangor to Machias called the Airline Road? Or, or my, yeah, I don't recall. But isn't it about 90 miles? It's far. Oh, and it's... Jaius is up there. And there's, at least back then, it's probably changed or maybe not. You could drive for miles and not see another car and only see trees. Still. Still. I've, yes. And I kept thinking, <laughs> you don't want to be driving 90 miles back and forth yeah, to right. get to civilization. That was another reason for right. the, the, the airplane. Yeah, but that's... That's how we got into flying. So how did they take it when you said, you know, I've changed my mind. I don't want to take the job. I don't recall. I just sent the books back and said, you know, take, take someone else. I, I can't go back up there. <laughs> it's too far. <laughs> and we had a little difficulty getting gigs in the beginning. So, and we, didn't we do what we did at the woodshed at other places? Did we play free? We played Sorry. free. Yeah, I don't recall. We played know. free there. We played at the Mill Hill Club. Oh, we did. One yes, we time. Did. Yes, we did. And when he said, no, 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 and I think you asked him, do you have a night or a day where you don't have music scheduled? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, Sunday afternoon. 
Yeah, we did. You're right. You let us let us play for free on Sunday afternoon. If you like us, hire us. They didn't hire us. Nope. <laughs> that was the first time I realized that as nice as some clubs look at nighttime with all the people and stuff like that, in the daytime when you take away the perfume of the, the pretty girls sitting around and the music and you walk in and there's a carpet on the floor and your feet go... <laughs> from the dropped beer oh God, and yeah. you know yeah, the smell right. of the stale beer that probably that wasn't a good spot they didn't hire us but then we did did we play at the the sand trap first or the sub and pub do you remember I think it was sand trap was it and i don't remember how we got the job there i don't either but it was weekly and we played all summer yes we did and um actually that's where we kind of gathered our group mm-hmm. i don't want to say groupies <laughs> um i mean all the girls who fawned over you yes th- yeah, those right. were the groupies but <laughs> right. there were also guys involved and then we ended up going to the su- the uh, sub and pub but didn't pub. we switch back and forth so we were working like five six days a week seven days a week we were working seven days a week yeah and we did eight gigs a week because we did a happy hour on sunday that's right so we had two gigs on sunday we did an afternoon and then we did an evening we're doing eight gigs a week you know, how did our voices hold up all that time? Good point, because the smoke was in the room. They, yeah. Yeah, they were still allowed to smoke in the room. And um, yeah, and we sang every night. Yeah, good point. I don't recall, but we did it. Yeah, and we, neither one of us were drinkers. Yeah. And I remember at the Sand Trap, somebody, and it was an older guy. He was probably all of 40, but of course, when we were in our <laughs> early 20s, that seemed ancient. He really liked us or you, and he bought us, what do you got to drink? He bought us shots, but mm. it was rye. And we, we were sitting, and the, there was a, a, a picture window with two little side windows, and you could pull up the sash on the side windows and our stools, because we sat left and right with the head in between <laughs> we pour back it out? then. And we'd pour it out the window, and we'd say salute, and everybody would upend it, and they weren't looking at us. We'd pour it out the window, <laughs> and we killed the shrubs. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had to stay sharp. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and of the two places, the, the Sand Trap, which was a smaller venue, and the Sub and Pub, which had two large rooms and a fairly large bar, which of the two did you prefer to perform at? The Sand Trap was more fun. It was. I, I'm sorry. I, I turned that around. The Sub and Pub, I thought, was more fun. Well, it had more of a youthful crowd, yeah. didn't it, whereas the other one was mixed? Sand Trap was older. Golf Golfers from Bright, uh, Brook, uh, Brockton. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, the Sub and Pub, I thought. I, I remember people getting on the tables and dancing at the Sub and Pub. That seemed to be a little more fun. Oh, definitely, except the fact that we our stage was in the corner. It was. Yeah. And, and describe to the people what was right behind our heads. Oh, the smoke eaters that attracted all the smoke, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the fans Cigarette, to take the, the cigarettes. The, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, when we get home... That evening after the gig, you'd have to leave your clothes outside. And the next day, because we had to change guitar strings daily back then. In fact, we might have changed them between the happy hour and the evening performance. I I just remember just spending a lot of money on guitar strings. Yeah, because they went dead so fast. And I think we ran into a fellow one time, and you may or may not remember this, who said, guitar strings? I can get you guitar strings. He brought us a case of Martin Marquis. Oh, I don't remember that. I remember someone telling us to boil them 
Oh, I don't don't remember that. Yep. Someone told us to boil them and and the grease from your fingers will come off and they'll be fresh again. That didn't work. I was going to say, did we try it? I don't recall. Uh, I tried it. Didn't work. Yeah. (laughs) I would think it would change the metal somehow. Yeah, it probably did. But no, this fellow, and he was was short-lived in that group, but he knew somebody. He says, oh, yeah, I work at a music store. I'll get you. Nice. I don't remember. But I think he light-fingered them. Oh, probably. But it saved us from spending money for a while. The, um, now, tell everybody, because we talked about this yesterday, what our first PA system was. And we were, it was state-of-the-art at the time. A huge, huge shore PA. Yeah, vocal and master, wasn't it? Vocal master, yeah. And the uh, speakers, if I remember, they had four 8-inch woofers in the middle and maybe a couple 10s or 12s at either side and you had to have two people carrying them yeah they were they had to be six seven feet tall yeah yeah they were tough so and we were chatting about this yesterday as well is there and subsequent gigs the mixer or the amplifier was always on your right hand side because you you sat on the right i sat on the left yeah we did how did we decide who ran the mixer? I, I don't remember that. I don't yeah, either. I, <laughs> I have no My idea. My guess is you were probably just better at it. Well, I don't remember, but I'm still doing it to this day. <laughs> now, tell people the name of your current band. The band we play in is Bigelow Station, named after a railroad station up in Maine. And what significance does that railroad station have? Well, our friend who you mentioned before, Brud, owns it, and we used to stay there when we were in college. And that time, the only heat source was that big cast iron mm-hmm. stove in the yeah. kitchen, wasn't no, it? No running water, and yeah, big pot belly oil burner, yeah. Because I can remember one time, um, you and I, and probably three others, because if I recall, there were two or three rooms that had bunk beds in them. Correct. There was one bathroom that had no running water. Had no running water. So to flush the toilet, you jumped a bucket of water in it. Right. Except when you'd wake up in the morning and it'd be frozen over. That's right. The, uh, but I remember that one time getting there in the evening, lit the stove, got it baking hot, had spaghetti dinner or something, and going to bed in the sleeping bags, waking up to 10 degrees inside. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you tried to get the upper bunk because the heat rose and right. the, the upper bunk was warmer than the lower bunk. The dog's water, Brud's dog's water would freeze on the floor. It was that cold. Yeah. Now, is that building still in existence? Still there. Uh, he has raised it and put a foundation under it and added a, a new, more modern section. Yep, still there. Central heated though. Yes, it's more modern. Yeah. Yeah. Still called Bigelow Station? Bigelow Station. It's the and, railroad station. And it was the railroad station. It was the actual northernmost railroad stop for the narrow gauge railroad that ran up from Farmington. Ah. Yeah. See, that I probably knew, but I have forgotten. Yeah. The narrow gauge was a narrower railroad track. And it was designed mostly to take lumber out of northern Maine. And there were a number of um, uh, rails that came down. This one was, I think it was called the Strong Line. Town up there is called Strong. Uh, And it went down into Farmington. And Bigelow was the northernmost uh, 
it ended there or started there, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Now, you considered Sugarloaf your home mountain. Yeah. Yeah. It's arguably the best ski area in the East. Is that because it's um, because of its number of runs and the height of the the the, the area as far as elevation, um, and the fact that it's farther north than so many others and gets better snow? What's the reason? It does for get it? a lot. Of, it does get a lot more snow than a lot of areas. It has the upper um, above tree line skiing. It has a lot to offer. It has a lot of trails for all different levels of skiers and. And like you said, it was always considered my home mountain, so it's kind of a sentimental thing too. But um, it's arguably the uh, you know one of the best in the East. Now it was where you trained, where the University of yep. Maine ski team. But how long? It was a drive. Two I, hours. Two hours yeah, just exactly. to train. Yeah, two hours. So you didn't do it weekdays. You well, during the season you were going to winter carnivals and races. Yeah, we did a lot of gym training called dry land training. Yeah, on snow, we had to head over to Sugarloaf. And I would tag along a lot. You did, yep. often. Yep. Yeah, and and what was the, uh, I remember when you started, Brud decided that the best way to build up your legs was to run stairs. Mm -hmm. And what you did was, and I would train with you guys sometimes, and you'd piggyback, some have your, someone on your some back. your own weight going up the stadium and. Stairs. Because I was the odd guy out, there was one heavyset fellow on the, on the, what was his name? Do you remember? Could have been Whit Thurlow. He it was, was Whit Thurlow. <laughs> and they always picked me to carry Whit. And he was probably 20 pounds. He was a big boy. Yeah. Heavier than anybody else. And it was just, I remember, of course, when he carried me, it was like carrying a fly. <laughs> but when I carried him, it was, it was not easy. And I didn't train with you all the time. But I remember going up, and uh, and I remember going on some of the, the 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 weekday trips with you guys, or or weekend carnivals. Sure. Um, yeah. I went to Dartmouth. I yeah. don't think that was the year you won. I don't think, but I remember going to the ski jump and and, yeah, and taking photos. The jumpers, yeah, yeah. A lot of famous people fun. attended Dartmouth. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a good school. Yeah. And then Suicide Six, I remember going uh, there. That was the day after the Dartmouth Carnival, yeah. And there were some Olympians skiing in that race. And That's I remember right. you'd, the start was out of sight from the lodge. Mm -hmm. And then there'd be a head wall coming down. And then there was a, a plateau or flat where you couldn't see the skier. And then you have the final run. Yeah, that's it. You remember well. And then probably half of the time you'd see the skier come over the top come down that head wall and you'd wait and you'd wait and the skier wouldn't show up because evidently that must have been a real tricky you know, transition from steep to flat or yeah. yeah yeah but i'm trying to remember the name of the olympian who and he was big time olympian he wasn't the, the top skier on the u.s olympic team but he was at that race and i thought this is so cool my friend rich is skiing against him yeah yeah that was always a very uh, it was a sunday Carnival was over Saturday, and the Suicide Six race was Sunday, and it got all the uh, U.S. ski team members there. Yeah, I was in it almost every year. Yeah. Now, when we started playing on the Cape, and we played, I guess, was it two summers we played? We did. Yeah. yeah. And then we, I don't remember how we got the gig in Boston was our first manager who turned out not to be that great of a manager. Did he see us on the Cape and say, I'm a, I'm a, I'll get you gigs. He met us at the sand trap. I recall 
and then he brought his friend down. Yeah, and he was going to manage us. And maybe that's how we got him, yeah, because we played in two pretty cool places. We did. In Boston, the winery and the, uh, and the Scotch and Sirloin. They were two very popular spots. And we, um, yeah, we did well there, too, yeah. Yeah, the, I remember the, uh, the Scotch and Sirloin was on the fourth floor, wasn't it? Of an old mill building. Right, and if yeah. you were driving up the then Southeast Expressway, which has all changed now, but if, when you because you were elevated, and you were basically almost even with the windows mm. of the Scotch and Sirloin. And so if I took somebody for a drive or whatever, I'd say, and see that place right there? That's where Rich and I played. Yeah. That was yeah. very cool. And the yeah. Celtics used to come in yeah. after their games, when it was a home game, some of them, mm-hmm. to have dinner and, and so forth. But we had some good crowds there. We did. We had a lot of, uh, a lot of people who used to come. We were some regulars because we played for a while, right? Um, yeah. And then the stewardess used to come into the winery. I do remember that. That is correct. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Was it Andrea? Val Vito. Yes, Val. <laughs> Dark-haired beauty. Yep. That was, uh, yeah, it was a while ago, but we became friendly. And that was the coolest place. If, if anybody's listening who lived in Boston or the Boston area in the 1970s and went to this restaurant bar, it was mostly a restaurant called The Winery. It was right down on the wharf. Right on the water, yeah. And they had some sort of tapestry hanging from the ceiling, and it would be attached, and then it would loop down all the way along. It was the coolest place. And as you walked in, there was this incredibly long bar on the left, tables, and then there'd be tables on the right-hand side. There were plate glass windows. For support, there were brick pillars. And there'd be a table in between the brick pillars, and midway down, there was a small stage, and that's where we would play. So we really couldn't see the people sitting between the brick pillars unless you leaned back or leaned forward, but we could see the rest of the people. But I do remember you and I sitting there, and across the parking lot behind was an apartment building, which had been an old mill or whatever, or warehouse. And I can remember, I think there was something in the news at that point in time where there was a sniper somewhere. And we started thinking, you know, we're sitting here with our back to these windows. You have better memory than me. <laughs> I don't remember that. And it was uh, one of those fleeting things. Well, maybe we shouldn't be sitting here. But anyway. <laughs> but that was a fun gig. It was. And that was yeah. when you had your blue Volkswagen automatic bug. Yeah. Yeah. That you could manually shift or just drive it as a, a automatic. Yeah. That was a cool car. Yeah. That was neat. My, it was my grandfather's. Bought it in Germany. Is that right? Yeah. I, that I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And your grandfather was a master cabinet maker. Yes, he was a woodcarver from the Black Forest of Schwarzwald. Yeah. yeah. And very few, maybe in Europe, you could find some families who've carried on the tradition of cabinet making. But it's not, you know, because I remember seeing some of the pieces because we visited your granddad one time on a trip down to New Jersey. And he was in that high-rise apartment building. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I do remember some of the furniture in there, which was, I mean, unbelievable. I'd never seen yeah, he made better, it. and he had made all yeah. that by hand. Now it's all computerized. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So going back to the music, um, you're, you're currently married, have two kids, and you have three, three grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. But if I recall, you met your, your lovely wife, Nancy, while we were playing on the Cape. Yes, we did. Yes, that's how we met. Yeah. yeah. 
we were just reminiscing about it, you, me, and her last night. You used to attract women like flies, yeah, right. you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I looked at her and said, uh, okay, this is who I'm going to marry. Oh, that's so cool. It took a year, but I got it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, um, I mean, those were fun times. And the, and then when we, we, we had a, a time where we weren't in kind of speaking mode, so to speak, for a period of yeah, time. It was kind of like Lennon and McCartney. Yeah, we, we kind of went our own ways for a while, but yeah. we both continued performing. We did, individually, yeah. yeah. And uh, you did the solo thing. You had moved to Connecticut to teach. Mm -hmm. How many years did you teach? Two years. Two years? Well, I was a full-time sub at Milton, and I was lined up to get the biology job, but they gave it to someone who had tenure. Yep. So I had to run down to Connecticut, and I taught two years there. Now, why did you only do that for two years? Why did you not make it a career? Because I was frustrated with the fact that I was working really hard. I was into it. I loved it. And I was at the bottom of the pay scale. And guys who were there, teachers who were there 15 years, had their feet up on the desk with the assignment on the board, and they were making twice as much money in me as me. And I said, well, I want to make that money. And well, you just have to stay here 15 years. And that's not the way it works. So yeah. I left and got into sales. Yeah. And you got into interesting sales. Yeah. I mean, tell, remind me, but tell the folks who are listening what type of sales you get into. Because it struck me as odd. I didn't expect you to ever get into that type of sales. Well, the first group, the first company was laboratory sales. So that was with my degree. Right. Which lab, is? Lab, biology. Yeah. Laboratory equipment, you know, from test tubes all the way up to, um, you know, digital scales. You know, we did all of that. Spectrophotometers and all that. I did that for two years. Did very well at it. Uh, and they wanted to cut my territory because I was doing so well and I got a little frustrated. I was playing the guitar at uh, the Ground Round in Framingham, Massachusetts. And next to that was Prime Computer. And a buyer used to come in with a salesman. And they listened to me every Wednesday night. And they had me over one uh, evening at the table. Hey, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a salesman. Well, how would you like to sell electronics? I said, well, I don't know anything about electronics. He said, you don't have to. You're a salesman. So I got into electronic sales and did that for quite a few years. Yeah. And then you started your own company at some point. We did. Um, one of the engineers I worked with um, recognized the need for printed, printed circuit board and wire harness assembly. They, uh, the big companies were sending out labor because they didn't have enough labor. So we became a labor shop, basically. We were putting uh, cables together by spec, by blueprint. And we had uh, solder machines and we were running uh, printed circuit board assembly. And we did that for a while, yeah. And then got into generator sales? Well, I uh, it was a manufacturer's rep, so we sold um, um, transformers, we sold wire assemblies, printed circuit boards, and, and chips, and you know anything to do with the computer industry, which was booming at the time in the mid-80s uh, in Massachusetts. So it was, um, you know, if you did your job well and you followed up on things, it was, you know, a great job to have at that time because things were just booming around the, the Boston area. But the entire time you kept up with your music yeah. and flying. Yes, I did. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I visited you one time and you had to see a company in Danbury, Connecticut. And you said, I have to fly out and meet with these guys. You want to take a ride? Mm -hmm. 
And I, I do remember flying out and I just sat, I don't know if I sat in the plane the whole time while you were, you had your meeting of about, you know, two or three hours and then we flew back. Well, any, uh, any excuse to go flying that I could write off as a business expense? Mm-hmm. I did. Could have driven just as fast probably, but. Now, which, was that a rented plane at the time or did you own a plane? I can't, no, I can't remember. We, um, I owned a um, Piper Archer, mm-hmm. 1982 Piper Archer. That's probably what we went in. And you're still flying today. Still flying today. Yeah. But you do a different type of flying for the most part. No, I'm a commercial pilot now and I do charter work. Yeah. And you, you've done angel flights. Tell people, yeah. many people probably don't know what an angel flight is. People who, for whatever reason, can't get to medical attention coming out of uh, Maine or, or um, coming off the Cape, they need medical attention. They, they might not have the resources. Um, they might not be able to because of um, immune system problems. They might not be able to go on a commercial airline. So there is a, uh, a very generous group of uh, pilots, and it's... Um, run by the company uh, or run by a, a nonprofit group called angel flights and it's all volunteer and you can you know pick flights you want to you know you bring someone down from maine into boston most most people go into boston because of the tremendous uh, medical services that are down in boston and you do it as a um, as a volunteer thing yeah. now and, is and it you get to fly is it you fly up, pick them up, fly them to Boston, and then do you wait for them, or do you... No, there'll be another mission to bring people back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's so. the farthest you've had to fly for an angel flight? Uh, Northern Maine. Yeah. There's a lot of people who come out of Maine and go into Boston. Now, are we talking like Presque Isle, Fort Kent, yeah. places like that? Yeah. We had a lot of flights that came out of, uh, out of Presque Isle. Caribbean. Now, what's it like to fly to Northern Maine? Is it weather-wise? Is it any different? I mean, are you flying over high terrain where it might get really bumpy, or is it just like anything else? Well, in western Maine, if you're flying up to one of the ski areas, you're dealing with mountain, you know, mountain flying. But eastern Maine is a plateau, and uh, we just flew up recently up to Caribou, and it was relatively flat with the exception of the huge Mount Katahdin just looming there. But everything to the east was plateau. Well, you mentioned um, western Maine, where the ski areas are, Sugarloaf and so forth. Uh, Judd Strunk, who was a very, he had a hit with uh, Daisy, Daisy a Day, a day. Yeah. Um, one of Brud's good friends, and they were part of the, what, Carabasset Valley Players. Wasn't yeah. that the name of their comedy troupe? The Bad Actors. The Bad Actors. <laughs> and I, there were three main people, I think, if I recall. It was Judd, Brud, and one other fellow. Oh, there was a, a gentleman uh, by the name of Icky Weber, Peter yes, Weber's that's, brother. Yep. And um, I think there might have been one or two others who joined the group, you know, time allotting. Yeah. But I remember when Bad we would actors. be playing at the, the Shugloaf Inn, and they would come in sometimes, and basically three sheets to the wind already. Always. And do <laughs> some of their <laughs> shtick. <laughs> and it was just like the one arm fiddle player. Total deadpan. Yeah. Total deadpan, yeah. <laughs> Great improvisers. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But Judd Strunk was on Laughing. He was. Um, and then, unfortunately, didn't he perish in a plane crash somewhere around Sugarloaf? At Sugarloaf, yeah. Was it Sugarloaf? Yeah. 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 Ran into the mountain, I guess. He did. Bad weather or something. Yeah, I think he was in a home. I think he might have been in a small plane or a home belt, and they must have had engine issues. Mm. Yeah. Lost. He was a, he was a um, very talented musician and a funny guy. Yeah. Really was. So the... 
you now go back to Bigelow Station. How did you get into, because you play in bands now, whereas I am a soloist. I mean, once in a great while, my acoustic organization, nonprofit in the Maryland area in Frederick, will do a group show where we'll do like the Songs of Canada, and they may pull six or seven of us together to do, you know, Gordon Lightfoot songs or Neil Young, whomever. But you've gone the route of band. What made you decide to do the band route rather than the solo work? Started um, in church, church I was going to. Uh, the pastor wanted a, um, a contemporary service, and he knew I played. Another gentleman played, and he got us together. And a... Um, Another gentleman started playing uh, keyboards with us, and then uh, we got an electric drum set, and we had a, uh, called the Praise Band. We had a little group called the Praise Band. Someone had asked us if we would do a, um, you know, an outside non-church gig, and we all looked at each other and said, yeah, I, you know, I can drum up a bunch of songs I used to do, and the other fellow said, yeah, I can drum up a bunch of songs, and we had one night where we played as a band, and we loved it. And we said, let's do this again. We were all over 40 at the time, so we called ourselves Five Past 40. Mm -hmm. And uh, we played a number of gigs. We played around and um, played a couple colleges and uh, played a couple plays, and we had a great time. Uh, that band kind of uh, disbanded, and people started leaving. And uh, I continued on with the bass player. And then my son's best friend started um, playing the guitar, and uh, we brought him on. And we brought another drummer on, and we changed the name to Bigelow Station, and that was in the mid-2000s. Mid so we've been together for a while, and I'm blessed to be playing with all these young guys who still want me to play with them. <laughs> uh, the lead guitar player is my son's best friend through high school, and the drummer is my daughter's very close friend from high school. And the bass player is a young man who works at our uh, business. And you own? They're all half my You age. and your, your wife and now your son own Village Ski and Sport. My son owns it. Well, I'm technically, yes. I'm retired. But, but uh, <laughs> I listened to you on the phone today between he and you and, and the fellow who's working on some racks for the coming season and stuff. You still have your hand in it. Oh, absolutely. He's, he's still, uh, he still confides a lot in me. Um, yeah. So has that been a fun career for you, the ski shop? It's been phenomenal. Yeah, it's been a great, uh, great run. I mean, you had a very successful amateur skiing career. And I would imagine that that really helped the business when you first started. Oh, no question. And it's a reason why we uh, got through the early days, the early 90s, when there was a recession and a lot of business were going out. A lot of ski shops went out of business. Uh, I knew nothing about retail. You know, as you started your shop, I don't imagine you had a lot of retail no, experience zero. either. Yeah, me too. Um, I brought on a, a, a fellow who was working with me in the electronic field, and he came on as my manager, and he was a bartender. So that was the extent of our retail experience. And then he knew, Rich, you want to keep $200 in the register at all times. That's the only thing we knew about retail. So, okay. <laughs> and to this day, 33 years later, at the end of the night, there's $200 in the register. But we, we learned. But it, the success was truly because of my background in skiing yeah. and, um, and the knowledge of what people want. You know, uh, the, the things we had to buy. We didn't go overboard with high-end stuff. We, we 
became it. We turned ourselves into a, a family shop, basically. So we knew our niche. We didn't try to be everything to everybody. And I think that was the key. Well, you also have been known for service. Absolutely. I mean, still to this day. Absolutely, yeah. And with the corporate-style ski shops not making it through, I think they, like the, like the corporate surf shops did, they got too big, and then the, the, the recession hit, and they had high rents and too many employees and not enough on-hands management and stuff like that. They kind of went out of business. You're now, Village Ski and Sport, isn't it the premier ski shop in New England? We have been awarded a number of awards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we get the best uh, outdoor magazine rates shops, and we usually get every year the best ski shop in Massachusetts, and we did get the New England uh, Ski Shop of the Year. Well, there's someone who wants to, to say something behind you. Do you want to say something, Nance? Now, we're doing a podcast. It's a worldwide podcast. She's looking very quizzical. She didn't know anything about it. She doesn't want to talk. That's, okay, that's fine. We, we have about five more minutes. The, uh, the, uh, it's, I've wanted to interview you, or not interview, I'd, I've wanted to chat with you on the podcast for many, many years because you are the, the real reason I have been able to sustain, such that it is, a music career if you can call it a career because obviously that's not where the the money comes from but it's been a, a lifelong love and although i did play guitar and sing prior to meeting you you and i getting together to play for the college girls the co-eds and then striking out so you didn't have to teach in machias maine and i didn't have to stay at Allstate insurance company any longer really put the bug and and it taught me especially how to be an entertainer, which is, we had this conversation before we started the podcast, which I think is so important. Relate to the folks what you related to me when you went to an audition when you were in, in Connecticut and you followed two guys. Tell that little bit of a story again. They were auditioning um, people to play. And uh, I was sitting down, and two guys got up to audition, and they did uh, Orleans uh, Dance With Me, which, if you know the song, mm -hmm. has a tremendous uh, guitar, acoustic guitar lead in it throughout the entire song. These guys could have been Orleans. They were phenomenal. And I'm sitting there going, oh, gosh, I have to go up next. And I went up, and I did my sing-alongs. I did my... Uh, yellow submarine and my um, john denvers and i entertained the people and talked with them and engaged them and i got the big saturday night gig and they got the tuesday night gig. <laughs> <laughs> so well it is it you know it's um, i always when you and i got together i've said it before and i'll say it again you were a better singer and you were a better guitar player but we were probably equal on the entertainment side. Well, and the, the thing is, it's like I'm a huge fan of the Beatles for sure, but also the group America because they came out when we were both in college. Horse With, Name, Horse With No Name came out. It was one of the first songs we played together, I think, at least professionally. No, it was. Two chords. <laughs> Two chords. It's so easy to play. But the beauty of America was the blend of initially the three and mm -hmm. then eventually the two, the harmonies, 
and just the acoustic sound compared to all the heavy metal that had been prior to it. And the, you know, I, I disagree that I was the better singer necessarily or guitar player. I think we were equal because we, everyone has strengths and negatives and ours complemented each other to the point where, and then the fact that, you know, I was like the straight man, you were the funny guy. <laughs> and it, you know, we played off of that and then played off the crowd. What I tell people, up and coming performers, you know, I, I say, you know, engage the crowd when it's allowed. If you're playing in a restaurant where you're really background music, don't engage the crowd. Absolutely, yeah, you have to know. But if you're in a, a winery or a coffee shop or someplace where that would be acceptable, people love to be included. Yeah. Especially right. somebody who comes in on a regular basis and you can make them feel special by acknowledging them. Mm -hmm. um, and then what you were so good, you were better at it than I was, is when we would take a break, we would go out and sit with the people absolutely, and get yeah. to know them mingle, yeah. and mingle. Yeah. And I don't do that any longer because I play straight through. Um, just because the, well, with COVID you couldn't mingle, but the, um, the venues that I was playing at, it might be just a two hour performance. And I watched other people play for 45 minutes, take a 15 minute break. The room was packed when they played the first set, they take the break and everybody goes, Oh yeah. Time to go home. And they come back up and there's no one left in the, Sort of like the fellow last night yeah, at dinner. I felt so bad. There was nobody left. Yeah, there were two people at the bar, yeah. and we, the three of us, were leaving. Yeah. So that's just the way it is. Now, we're going to end it in a second, but I came up from Maryland for a specific purpose. What was the purpose? Besides just seeing you, because we haven't seen each other in person for many years. For us to play together again. Before we get too old, and we can't do it anymore. <laughs> and I've been bugging you for years to do it. But and, I, I am so looking forward to this. Oh, I, I am looking it. forward to it, but I am so scared to death ah, that I'm going to screw you guys up. No, you're not. No, you're not. So your practice sounded great last night. Well, you, you guys have such a wonderful um, set list of a mix of songs to yeah, cover everybody in the audience. It's a very eclectic mix, and that, that is one of our strong points. Oh, and, and, and we get called on that. We do some heavy stuff, and then we do some mellow stuff. And, and you know, a lot of bands just stay with one genre um you know we go from you know a simon and garfunkel song to a heavy tom petty song mm -hmm. uh, or a rolling stone song and um people like that well it's it should be a whole lot of fun i get to play my acoustic guitar you're going to be playing your gibson yeah um and then we've got uh tonight anyway it's jesse on the bass and he's a touring professional he is indeed yeah and he's wonderful. Ben's going to be on the drums. And Mike is uh, Keith's best friend, mm -hmm. is playing lead guitar and, and singing as well. Yeah. Doing, singing lead on some songs, doing high harmonies on, on some other songs. And you're doing lead on many of the songs. Yeah. And then you've, fortunately, three of the songs I play in my own set list. Good. Because they sounded the other, great last night. Well, we're going we're gonna to find out how well they go tonight because there's going to be a lot of people who are performing at Patriot Place. And unfortunately, those of you who are listening will not hear this podcast until I get back to Maryland and upload it. So the, the concert or the performance will have been history at that point in time. But the, um, it should be fun. It's at Patriot Place, which is right in front or around, if you want to put it, uh, Gillette Stadium, where the Patriots play. It is a very cool, almost like a city into itself. Yeah. 
So I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And I'm so thankful that you have agreed to be on the podcast. Thank you, Rich. Well, thank you, Todd. And we're going to go out with a little more music. I can't remember which music this is, but uh, we'll see you later. Always helps when you turn the volume up. The Whispering Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by me, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. From the Whispering Mob Music Acoustic Radio place, whatever you want to call it, production studio in Frederick, Maryland. And I want to thank my good friend Rich Brackold again for joining me on today's show. Thanks so much for listening. You can find it on wispymopmusic.podbean.com or on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.